Uh, I have started, uh, I realize I've started to notice as I, as I get older and as my kids get older, um, there's this kind of cruel cycle uh, with your children. Uh, I am now hearing things that I used to say to my parents that annoyed them that my, pa- my kids now say to me. It like comes back around. Uh, different things that they say and different things that are they're coming. I'm going to move those back just a little bit so I don't trip on them. Uh, but things that they say and the things that kind of come back around. Um, I remember when I was in like fourth, fifth, sixth grade, my brother and I got really into baseball cards. And so my parents would get us like a, a, a really a more expensive card that we couldn't buy or our allowance couldn't pay for. And so we'd ask for a certain card or something. And that would happen, you know, like birthday, Christmas or something. My dad would buy us like some big rookie card or something that we were really excited about. And we'd have it. And then uh, six months would go by and then we'd need money. And uh, we'd go back to him and we'd be like, hey, you want to buy this really great rookie card from me? And we'd try to sell him on it. We'd be like, hey, he's having a great year. It's going up in value. I'll make you a deal on it. And my dad would always look at me and he'd say, uh, I already paid for that card once. I'm not buying it again. And it was like he would always kind of come back to that or, or we would say uh, he'd give us jobs to do around the house and he'd tell us to do things. And we'd go, well, uh, what are you going to give me for it? And my dad would say, uh, there's a roof over your head and there will be dinner on the table tonight. And uh, all of a sudden I've realized my kids say all those same things. They come to me and they're saying the same things and they're trying to sell me things that I already bought. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll sell it back to you. And it's like, yeah, I already paid for that. And then I'm like, that's what my dad used to say to me. Or I say, hey, I need your help outside. We're going to move this thing and we're going to do this. And they go, what are you going to give me? How much are you going to pay me? And there in my head, echoing is my dad going, you have a roof over your head and there's going to be dinner on the table and I'll pay you those and that's what you'll get. And it's so easy, though, as I was thinking about it, all of a sudden your perspective changes as a parent. Suddenly you're looking at it. I remember saying those things, but now as I look at it from my parents' perspective and you're paying for all those things, what made perfect sense as a kid now to me as a parent, it's like, that's ridiculous. What is wrong with them, right? Like I already paid for all these things and now I'm going to pay for them again and now you want more and all those things. And suddenly you see it completely different from the other side. Uh, when you're a child, though, your reasoning seems really solid to you, right? You're like, well, this makes sense. He gave this to me and I could sell it back to him. And that, right. And you go through these exercises in your mind. But as you get older, you have a bigger perspective and you kind of know what things cost. And you're the one paying the bills and you're seeing those things. And suddenly it gives you a very different way of seeing it. And so as you grow up and as you mature, that's the case. And um, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about those interactions And then thinking about what Jesus says as he tells this parable that we're going to look at this morning, that Jesus has a very different perspective than his disciples. They're going to Peter's going to ask him a question. He's going to say some things and they're going to not really be understanding what Jesus is saying. And then he's going to tell this parable. And I think in a lot of ways, Jesus is like the parent that now sees the full picture and his disciples don't really see all of it at all. And he's going to answer these questions and he's going to say this in some ways that you hear his parable and and even us today. We're going to read through this parable and we're going to think about it together. And you'll be like, well, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. And we'll start to feel those ways. And the reason we feel those ways is because we're missing some really great big foundational truths of who God is. And when we do that, it leads us to distortions of seeing the way the world works and what's fair and what's right and all those things because we're missing a key truth right at the middle of it. 
And so the way I want us to look at this, we're going to look at the end of chapter 19, this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And then this parable he tells, and as we do, the way I want us to look at it is first I want us to consider this important truth that we often overlook or we forget, or maybe we, we, we believe, but we just don't see the fullness of it, right? So we either overlook it or we forget it or we just don't see the fullness of it. And so I want us to consider what that truth is first. But then secondly, the distortions that come when we miss that. There's distortions that come into our life and our relationship with God that come in when we miss that. And then lastly, I want us just to consider what it is that Jesus says that kind of helps pull us back to the reality of that truth. So let's start with the important truth that we can often overlook or forget or not see the fullness of. And I'll just tell you real, real uh, plainly up front, and then I'll show you this. The truth that we often overlook or forget or not see the fullness of is that God is everything and we owe all to him. That he is the deepest desire of your heart. He is the creator and redeemer and sustainer of all things. And we exist because God says so. I love the way Jonathan Edwards says that. If, if God were to move us, remove us from his thoughts for a millisecond, we would cease to exist. And we, we say that as believers. We say that in our church. We talk about that. We say that's true. Uh, we use here the New City Catechism, if you've ever used that. Uh, we print that. We print a monthly bulletin that has the New City Catechism questions in there. You can go online and download that, recess, uh, that resource for free. 52 questions and answers. There's one for each week. And they just summarize great big theological truths. And the very first one in the New City Catechism is what is our only hope in life and death? We are not our own. We belong to God. I remember doing that with my boys when they were very little and saying that over and over. What is our only hope in life and death? We're not our own. We belong to God. And we say that, and that's absolutely true, and the Bible tells us that, and that's right at the middle. We profess that historic uh, Christian faith that's always been part of it, that, that God is the creator and sustainer and redeemer of everyone and everything, and we profess that, but oftentimes we miss the totality of it. And I think at the heart of what Jesus is teaching here, that's part of the misunderstanding that's right at the center of what he's going to say in our text and when we miss it, we become like the child. We become like me with my dad going, hey, buy me more and give me more and you owe me and this is what's fair because I'm seeing it from this little tiny perspective and I'm forgetting. And so the same thing in the way in which we approach God, we're forgetting that he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything and we owe him all. And when we miss that, these distortions can start to come in. And so I want you just to look at this, this parable that he teaches us in chapter 20. But before that, I want us to go back just a little bit in chapter 19, because I think Jesus' parable is directly tied to what Peter says to him in chapter 19. And so in chapter 19, Jesus has just had a conversation with what we often refer to as the rich young ruler. This guy comes to him and questions him. Jesus tells him to sell all that he has, and he goes away sad, right? And uh, that's quick overview of that, but I'm skipping a whole lot of things in that. But then I want you to look at what he says next after that. Verse 23 of chapter 19 in Matthew. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? 
Right? And so he says this thing about how uh, wealth is a hindrance to living in the fullness of who God is. Right? That in some ways that it, that it hinders us from living under God's rule and reign in every area of our life. And they're astonished at this. It says they're greatly astonished. And they say, who then can be saved? And the reason they say this is because at the time, the belief was that if you're wealthy, that that's God's blessing on your life and that you have found favor and that God really is, is pleased with you. I don't know how I do that at different times. About once every six weeks, my watch starts interrupting. Spiritual warfare. It's like, forget about that. And don't listen to that. But what happens is, so they're asking these questions because their, their understanding is, that's not true. Why would that be the case? Why would that be the case? If somebody's wealthy, it would be a hindrance. Because they thought that this is evidence of God's blessing on their life. And so I want you to think about that for just a second. See, oftentimes we believe that the greatest good in our life will come through things like wealth, through stuff, through uh, making a name for yourself, by being really successful. And we start to put our hope in those kind of things. And so they're looking at it as like, well, God's given him these things. What do you mean that that's a hindrance? But I want you to just to consider for just a second That if God is everything and we owe all to him and he alone will meet the deepest needs of our heart. When we become very wealthy, when we have lots of stuff, we have lots of things. It can be a hindrance because we can start to seek to fill the deepest desires of our life with stuff. We can start to use the gifts that God's given us to make uh, a name for ourselves, to, to root our identity in it. We can start to try to buy things that will bring us happiness. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 it actually makes it harder in a lot of ways. Because instead of seeing that it's God alone that can meet your deepest needs, you start to try to fill it up with different things. That's what idolatry is. When the Bible talks about idolatry, the, the idea is just putting anything in God's rightful place, elevating it over him and thinking it can give you what only God can give you. And so he's saying wealth can actually be a great hindrance in your relationship with the Lord. But once you start to embrace that and you start to take your eyes off of God as the author of everything and the answer to everything, then other things start to flood in. And what happens is it's easy to end up in kind of a consumer relationship with God. What can God give me that will make me happy? Well, God is the only thing that can truly make you happy. He's the source. He's the only thing that can meet that need. But we start to believe, oh, if I follow Jesus, then he'll give me stuff. And I think you see that in what Peter says, right? They're astonished when Jesus says this, right? In verse 25, that's what it says, that they're just greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and we followed you. What then will we have? And I want you to think about what Peter's saying. Right? Hey, Jesus, we jumped in on this early on. We're early adopters. Right? Before anybody knew and we weren't even sure if you were the Messiah, we dropped everything and we followed you. What are we going to get? Right? That's kind of what he's saying. Right? He's so excited and he's like, well, what, what are we going to get out of this? Now, remember, I've been saying this. We've been moving through the Gospels chronologically. We're now down to just a couple weeks before the crucifixion. But the disciples still believe that the Messiah is going to lead them into Jerusalem 
and he's going to overthrow the Roman government and he's going to set up his kingdom right then and there. And so they're like, what are we going to get? Right? Like what's about to happen? And so whenever Jesus, and he's told them multiple times now, whenever he says, I'm going to go into Jerusalem and they're going to deliver me over and I'm going to be killed. They're like, no, you're not. Right? That's actually what Peter says to him. That'll never happen, Lord. You're going to be ruling and reigning and we're going to be right there with you. And so he's asking that question of like, what are we going to get out of this? But then look at what Jesus says in verse 28. Truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. And will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And I'm telling you, when Peter hears that, he's like, jackpot! Yes! That's what we've been waiting on. We're going to be ruling and reigning. We're going to get a hundred times. We've been last for so long. The Roman government's been telling us what to do. We're going to be first. This is going to be great. I'm guessing that's the way he's hearing a lot of this. Yes! Finally! Finally, we're going to get it. We've been following him. We've been dying to ourselves. He's hearing, yes, we're going to get to rule and reign and money and power, and we're going to be in control. But the problem is Jesus' timing is different. And he's been telling them this, but they're missing it because they're so locked in the way that they see things. Jesus is even telling them that it's not going to happen exactly like they, they think, but they just don't have the vision to see it yet. He says there in the new world when the son of man sits on his glorious throne. The word that Jesus uses there for new world is talking about when all things are made new. Now they believed that that was going to happen when they overthrew the government. They're going to overthrow the government. That's going to all happen at once. But Jesus knows he's going to lay down his life and he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected. And in his second coming, that's going to come. But they don't see that. And so there's a disconnect between what Jesus is saying and what they're hearing. But the thing I want you to think about here, and it's what starts to draw us away and missing it, is they're thinking about what Jesus can give them. What they're going to get by following Jesus. What it is that he can bring in our life. And so what happens is Jesus then tells this parable. And I think part of this is in response to what Peter says. What are we going to get? And so then he begins to tell them this parable. And it's a pretty easy parable to understand. Right? Some of Jesus' parables are kind of tricky and you're really wrestling with it. But this one's pretty straightforward. Wealthy landowner goes out and invites people to come in and work in his vineyard. And some come at 6 a.m. and some at 9 and some at noon and some in the middle of the afternoon. And he keeps bringing people in to work in his vineyard. And he promises to pay them. And it gets to the end of the day and he goes back through and he tells them to pay them what they owed. And he goes and he starts with the guy that's only worked a couple hours that came in last and he gets a full day's wage. And everybody else goes, whoa, we're going to get a lot. He gave a full day's wage to the guy that only worked three hours. But then he goes back through and he pays them all the same. And some of them get mad and they get upset and they're frustrated. In fact, when you read it, it's easy to read it and go, well, that's not fair. Man, if I started at 6 a.m. and I worked all day and he paid me the same, the guy that worked at 3 Right? You can feel that. You can go, well, that doesn't seem fair. But then Jesus gets to the end of telling this story, and it's like he switches it. Right? They're all following along with the story, like, yeah, yeah, that's not fair. And then Jesus gets to the end, and he says this. But he he replied 
to one of them, friend, am I, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first will be last? He flips it. And part of what he's saying is, in the story, the landowner is God. And Jesus is showing us that. And he's saying everything's God and he gets to do with it as he chooses. And he switches that. And he goes, have I not been incredibly generous to you? And it's like, whoa, wait a second. They're all like, right? And then notice he says right at the end, and the first will be last and the last will be first. It's the same thing that he just said to Peter, right? He said before, he's talking to them, the first will be last, last will be first. He says it again. And so I think what he's driving at here is he's showing them that they're missing, that God is everything and that we owe him everything. And that's the way in which we should read this story. And when we miss that, we start to distort all of it. And we start to go, well, that's not fair. And that's not the way God should do it. And who is he to do that? And you should answer to me and all the things that start to come. And so I want you to think about the distortions that come when we miss that God is everything and we owe all to him. The first part is that you start to get into this thinking. So think about the parable. The workers are like, well, why did you pay them less? Right? They're saying back to the landowner, the distortion that comes when we miss that God is central in everything and that we owe all to him is we start to believe that God answers to us. That I say back to God, no, 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 that's not the way you should do it. You answer to me. And that's so easy for us to slip into from our limited view. We're like the kid that says to your parents, well, you should buy me this and you should do this because that's you see it from this view. And it's the same with us. We see it from our limited view and we start to think the same way. And so the parables, the workers in the parable are saying this is not fair from their limited view. But there's a really important detail you miss. You might read through that and you gloss right over it. Look again at the parable, verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. What were they doing when he came and found them and invited them to work in his vineyard? They were standing idle in the marketplace. I can't think of a better descriptor for us as people today. Standing idle in the marketplace. They didn't have a job. They didn't have a way to make money. They're just standing there hoping that they get hired at some point. They have no prospects. They don't really know what they're going to be doing that day. And this guy graciously comes and invites them in to work in his vineyard. And we often miss that. That if it wasn't for his graciousness to invite them in, they would still be standing idle in the marketplace. He says the same thing again in verse 5 and 6. So he went out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour and he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they say, because no one has hired us. He says, you too go into the vineyard and work. And so what you see in the story as Jesus tells it is those in the parable are unemployed. They don't have any prospects. They don't know what they're going to be doing. They don't have a way to make an earning. They're not They don't know how they're going to make their living, but it's the graciousness of this master that comes out and invites them in. 
And when we forget that that's our standing before God, we start to say, you answer to me, God. Why like that? And we forget that we exist because he says so. And not only do we exist because he says so, we've rebelled against him. And what he does is he chases us down and he invites us back in. And he does it over and over again. And then we say, well, why like that? And that's exactly what they're doing in this story. They're going, who you owe me. And he's going, what are you talking about? When I found you, you had nothing. You didn't have a job. You didn't have a way to make money. And how easy it is for us to forget the same thing. And as soon as we do, the distortion that happens is we believe that God answers to us. And that's not the reality. We answer to him. But then the second part that comes out of that and they flow right together is it distorts our sense of what's fair. Gives us a distortion of what is fairness. And so Peter's question, in essence, when he says, we followed you, what are we going to get? Right? He's going, we've done so much more. Aren't we going to get more? Right? We've been with you from the beginning and we left everything and we came and followed you. What are we going to get? And it starts to distort our understanding of what part that we play in our relationship with God. It's the sinfulness of our heart that believes that we contributed to our salvation. Why does anyone come to faith? Why does anyone have a right relationship with God? Is it because of what we do? And the Bible's answer emphatically is no, it's not based on what you do. It's based on God's grace. And it tells us that over and over and over again. Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul's writing probably the greatest theological work ever. And he spends two whole chapters to say we're all sinful. That none of us can ever do enough to be accepted by God. And he starts from chapter 1 and verse 19 and he goes all the way up through chapter 3 and verse 20 and he's just saying this. And he gets to chapter 3 and in verse 9 and he says, We have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, remember when Paul says Jews and Greeks, he means everybody, right? Jews and everybody else. That's really what he's saying. So everybody, whether you grew up religious or you didn't grow up religious, you're all under sin, And then he says, as it's written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. We've all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What he's saying is no one's kept God's law perfectly. We've all rebelled. We've all ignored him that none of us has been able to do it. No matter how much you try, you will never be able to do enough to earn your worth before God. But then remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two in verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. 
That is the background with which we should hear this parable that Jesus is telling. We're the idle people in the market. We're the ones that don't have any prospects on our own. God is the rich landowner that comes to us and goes, what are you doing here? Idle, come and work for me. I think of the way it says it in Ephesians chapter 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Right? That's what he's doing. The landowner's coming and saying, work for me in my vineyard and I'll take care of you. He's prepared these good works for you to walk in. And so when we miss that, we miss really what he's saying in this parable. None of us is righteous. We're all saved by what God's done, not our own doing. And so when we slip into, well, that's not fair, and I deserve more, and I followed you longer, and I did this, and I did that, we're missing the very heart of all of it, that it's all God's grace to us. I have a good friend that used to say this all the time. When you think about your salvation, all that you bring to the equation is your sin. God does all the rest. And that's exactly what he's telling in this parable. But when we miss that it's all God and his doing, what ends up happening is we start to say, you answer to me, God, and that's not fair. And that's not the way I would have done it. And I deserve more. And all those things that start to follow because we've missed that foundational truth. And then there's one last part here as we think about the distortion that comes. And there's a distorted sense of what the good life actually is. You know, when you think about this parable and it's illustrating what it's illustrating, it's illustrating people coming to faith at different times in their life, right? Some come very early and they work all the way through and some come later and some come right at the end. You know that to be true. Uh, If you've been a a follower of Jesus for any given amount of time, some of you in this room, your your, your testimony is I didn't come until much later in life. And some of you have said to me, I don't remember a day in my life where Jesus wasn't in it. And you know that to be true in the way that that works. And God works in different ways with different people. But here's the, be- the saddest part in this of what Peter says. We've given up everything and we followed you. We're the early adopters. We came in right from the beginning. What are we going to get? And the implication of Peter's question is we deserve more because we've, been, we've left everything. And we've been following you from the very beginning. But if you really stop and consider what's behind his question, what he's really saying, and even what the parable is saying when we miss it, when we miss what Jesus is saying, is that it would be better to live your life doing whatever you want and then become a Christian right at the end. That's really what it's saying. And Peter's even saying, like, I gave up so much for you, so what am I going to get But what's that's missing right at the very heart is the lie that life apart from God is better. That is not true. It's not better to go through your life seeking to take in all that the world has and live in your flesh and then repent at the last minute. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. It's not better. It is so not better. I see people every day that I meet and they don't know the Lord. And their life is like this mist 
It's evaporating right in front of you. And they're seeking to grab different things to fill their life up. And you can see it. You can see that it'll never do it. And the idea that we would believe that that's better. That it's better to ignore God. It's better to do whatever you want and then right at the last minute get the get out of jail free card and slip in. That's a lie. That's not true. I want you to think about Peter's life. Peter is a fisherman and he's making a living and he meets Jesus very early, right? We said the first year, the year of uh, kind of the anticipation of nobody really knows who Jesus is. Starting to be known a little bit and he comes to Peter and he says, you follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And he leaves everything and he follows them. Think for a minute if he didn't. Let's say Peter goes, you know what? You might be the Messiah. You might not. I'm not sure, but I got this good job. Got a wife at home. I've got some good things going. I'm going to keep being a fisherman. Thanks, no thanks. And imagine for just a second, he goes through his life and he grows to be the greatest fisherman that's ever lived. And he buys more and more boats. And he makes more and more money and he has more and more people work for him. And he goes through his life and he lives it up. And he travels and he has lots of kids and he has all these wonderful things. And he goes through his life and now he's 85 years old and someone comes along and tells him, remember that guy, Jesus? He really is the Messiah. And he raised from the dead and you need him. And Peter goes, yes. And he sees it and he becomes a believer and a year later he dies. Which life was better? Would it have been better to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth, proclaiming his name, being killed in his name? Or to live this life ignoring him and not knowing him and then coming right at the end? And that's part of what Jesus is saying in this parable. You mean to tell me the person who's been working in God's kingdom for their whole life that that's worse? That they get, that that's somehow that they've been cheated? Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. That will never be the case. What God tells us when we come to know him, there will be times in your life where you have to die to yourself. You have to die to your flesh. You have to die to your sinful ways. You have to die to what the world is telling you is the good life. But what Jesus is saying is it will never be better than what he's offering. Even in those times. Even when you have to put aside those things and seek to follow him. Makes me think of a quote from G.K. Chesterton. If you know who Chesterton was, turn of the century in England, brilliant apologist, writer. But there's this quote from Chesterton, the older I get, the more I feel like, oh, he so nailed this. But what Chesterton says is Christianity has not been tried and found wanting but it's been found difficult and left largely untried. And so what we do is we go, oh, well, the world sure looks great. But then at the same time, we're not following Jesus fully. We're not really trusting him in all those things. We're kind of living one foot in the world and one foot following Jesus. And then we're going, oh, it's not that good. It's because we're not trusting him. And he's saying, it's always going to be better following me working for his glory rather than for your own. And I'll tell you, that's going to look, you say that and you embrace that and you're going to look crazy to the world. Why would you want to make your life all about giving it away for the good of God's glory? People are going to go, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? 
But Jesus says, come and follow me and it will always be better. And so I'm aware that when we say that, we all fall into these different ways. We all remove God from the center. We all forget about him in those ways. We all start to embrace this at different times with a distorted sense of fairness or God answers to me or a distorted sense of what the good life looks like. And it's hard because we're constantly bombarded with a different message, always. In the world we live in, you're constantly being told the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. But when you start to think about that and you're wrestling with it, there's something he says here that I think is really wonderful that helps you in it. And it's back in chapter 19 when Peter first answers or asks this question. We have left everything and follow you. What will we then have? Verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, and then he goes through, you'll receive a hundredfold. It's going to be far better. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Uh, I'll tell you why. It's because of the word that he uses there for new world. Palagenesia means regeneration. He says, in the new world, which means when all things are set right, when all things are made new, when all things are restored to the fullness of the glory that God intended them to be. That's what Jesus is saying. When all things are set right and I'm sitting on my glorious throne, those that left and followed me and sought to make me center of their life, all of those things are going to come to be. There's nothing in your life. I'm so fully convinced of this. Nothing in your life that you die to yourself and you put God first, that when he returns and he brings all of it to the fullness of his glory that you're going to regret. You're never going to be like, man, I wasted my time seeking God's glory. You're going to see it. And here's the cool part when you get frustrated with it. The things that you're giving your life away for as you proclaim God's name and you seek to make him central and you begin to talk about him and you begin to die to yourself and put him first, you're going to see all those things come to fruition. All of it. Every bit of it. And you're never going to be sorry that you spent your time on it. I used to tell, I'll end with this. I used to tell this illustration many years ago. I remember when Jed was uh, three, Asher's four, and I decided to paint their bedroom at the time. And they said, Dad, can we help you? And you go, uh, I guess so, right? Like when a three-year-old asks you to paint, you're like, eh, help, <laughs> okay. And I said, come on. Uh, I still have a picture somewhere. I put great big old T-shirts on them that went down to the floor to cover them. And I put them in the corner of the room and I gave them both a paintbrush. And I said, you guys paint right here. Go at it. And they start painting. And to this day, it's a miracle. For two hours, they painted together, giggling and laughing and just going and going and going. And I painted the entire room, right? I rolled it, cut it in, painted it, and I get to that last little part where they've been painting. And they've been having the best time. And I go, okay, move over. And I roll right over it. <laughs> and then I'm like, hey, look at what we did. And it's finished, and we've now done it. And that's really kind of our work, right? When we seek to honor God in all things. And we give it away and we're painting it our little thing. But he says, in the regeneration, when I come, you're going to get a hundredfold. And that little part that you worked on, you're going to see in fullness far beyond anything you could ever imagine. And you will never regret, never regret doing that. God invites us to be part of what he's doing. The good works that he's prepared for us beforehand. And it's all for his glory. 
Would you pray with me? God, we pray that we would see a fullness of who you are and what you've done for us and the ways that you are working. God, would you show us in the moments where we start to believe the lie that you answer to us, that this life is about what we do rather than your glory, that you would continue to show us the fullness of the ways in which you are working. We thank you for allowing us to be a part of your work, that you invite us in, that you come and find us when we have no prospects of our own and you draw us in to what we're made for and you set us loose to be able to seek to honor you in all things. Will we have the vision to see that in everything? I pray that we would trust you more fully in all things. We would seek to live for your glory above all else. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.